Nisha. And I love how Nisha was like, I don't know, I don't know if you guys can hear that jet, but no, we can hear it. Yeah, we hear it. It's good. Oh, that worship time was so powerful. I think, as Nisha said, let's just stay in that place, allowing God to work in our hearts and, and do what he's, what he's doing as we open up the word. And, and as you guys know, we're in Acts uh, chapter 6 and actually Acts chapter 7 today. So we've made it into Acts chapter 7. And uh, I want to, to jump in here, make sure that we can make it through all of this. It's a long chapter, a lot going on here, but we're going to dive into it. Um, and, uh, so got my towel. Kate was, Kate wasn't sure if I was going to bring my towel up, but I'm going to, I got a towel. I don't know if I'll use it. I might do like Jerry Tarkanian and just chew on it or John Thompson throw it over my shoulder while I preach. What do you think? I love to put, um, references in my messages that are just for one person or maybe two in the, in the entire place. <laughs> So for those of you that know what I'm referencing, you uh, welcome to Living Waters. No, I'm not going to actually preach with it over my shoulder, but I might, if I get crazy, I might wave it around. And <laughs> Carefully, you don't get caught in the wind of it, and there's no telling what might happen. Um, kidding. All right. So I don't know. Um, how are we doing? We're doing good. Does anybody else smell that fried chicken while we were worshiping? Good night. I was having a hard time focusing. I mean, the worship time was powerful, but I was like, you are my six piece meal. What is happening right now? Does Jesus' presence smell like fried chicken to anyone? It was good. It was awesome. All right. So, uh, Acts 7. I, I goof around. Um, but, but running through this passage of Scripture, let me, I got some notes, I got some thoughts, and, uh, and, and, I, and I feel like the Lord's just interrupting me before I, before I jump in. And so, you guys know I goof around a lot, I make a lot of jokes, I'm also very serious, a lot of times that the seriousness is covered over by humor, and, and it's something I've learned my whole life, a lot of you have, uh, you understand that how we grow up with different personality traits um, and if you if you are being if you're told that you're too intense, you're, you're too whatever, you learn to kind of mask it with humor. There's nothing wrong with that. It's okay. Um, but I know that when I teach, sometimes people have a hard time because I'll, I'll I'll be like joking, and then I'll and then I'll be really serious in the next breath, and it's like what is going on here? So this whole story right now is just to create a little bit of a gap from the six piece chicken joke. <laughs> Because I feel like the Lord wants us to pray for people um, this morning who are who are dealing with COVID, and and um, it's 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 very real right now. It's super intense right now. Um, if you have somebody that's dealing with COVID or fighting COVID right now, would you just raise your hand? Uh, um, and uh, and I just want to pray for those that are. It's we just got word. I got I got a message from somebody this morning that we were praying for the, a family member that lost their family member to COVID um, a few hours ago. And, um, and we have folks in our family and we got folks in our church that are, that are fighting it in, a, in the most extreme way right now. And, um, and so I, I thought before we jump in, it would be important as a, as a family, as a house, that we just pray for, for people. So would you join me? Jesus, we, we just step in and, and place our faith together before you and we stand on your word. 
It's the only place we can stand in times like this. We stand on your word, and your word tells us that if we agree on any one thing in your name, that it will be done. And so we simply ask, Jesus, that you would cover those right now who are dealing with COVID, that are fighting COVID, that you would heal them, you would meet them, you would restore their body, their lungs, that you would remove pneumonia and any other complications and other things that are taking place, that you would bring us great encouragement to carry to those that are fighting this right now, um, that you would teach us how to respond, Lord. And we also speak just for this valley, for this city, for this region. I know that from medical professionals and, and hearing what's going on and, and what the outlook is still, um, that this would be something that passes over us, even though it looks extremely grim right now that it would pass over us. You're a God of Passover, so we just call out, God, let it pass over us. Let it pass over lives and families in this region because of you. And, and we would look to you and we would glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, so we just, yeah, we continue to contend for healing and, and for health and, and, uh, and, and encourage you. I love that we're outside. I love that we have this place we can gather. And, um, and when we chose to come out here, it looked like we were through all of that, all of that. But, but here we are again. It looks like we're going to have to navigate it again. But it's nice to be able to be outside and have a place to gather where, where we don't have to worry about that. But I would still encourage you to take care of yourself. Make decisions for yourself on how you feel safe and what feels the most comfortable to you. And, and just honor people in their decisions of how they're walking out this season. Um, give the gift of honor to people. Um, can we do that? Okay. Um, so Acts 7. I asked you, I, I sent out a text last night to the church. If you don't have, if you're not on our text list, go ahead and jump on there. You can do that through the website. Um, but, I, but I asked everybody to read Acts 7 ahead of time today because I'm not going to read it to you this morning. It's very long. Um, if you didn't read it beforehand, uh, you can go ahead and read it afterward. And, and, and just, I know that you get like to get online and watch the message several more times and take all the notes. And so while you're doing that, you can just read Acts 7 and, and enjoy it. But what's basically taking place in Acts 6, you have a group of people, a community of believers that are divided over the resources that are coming in, the fiscal responsibility of the church, how they should take care of people and there was a group of people who were being overlooked because of their background because of their the, how they talked the, what they looked like and how they acted culturally they were diminished within the eyes of the of the church as a whole and they began to bring that complaint to the religious leaders to the apostles who were leading the church and so the apostles appointed uh, leaders empowered people from that group to become to have a place at the table to be able to make a difference in the leadership and and so it tells the story of how the church navigated that and then it tells the story of one of those men being Stephen and Stephen is who I want to focus on in Acts chapter 7. I tried not to talk too much about Stephen in Acts chapter 6 because uh, I knew this, this passage in this chapter would be about uh, Stephen, so much of Acts 7. And, and, uh, and, I, and I see Stephen as just a foundational and monumental person in the history of our faith. And, and because he only is in the, in the Bible for a couple chapters, we can sometimes miss that. But I, but I can't overstate how valuable and how important he is to the story and the journey of Christianity. And so Stephen is um, traveling around and he's talking to the, to the Hebraic Jews. And they have synagogues and, and temples, little synagogues that they've set up. And he goes into those places and he, and he talks to them about the old covenant, about the law, about, about their history as a Jewish nation and their relationship with God and how they've related to the prophets. And then he would argue with them about how Jesus was the Messiah. And, and so no one in, in all of these synagogues could stand up to, to Stephen's wisdom and revelation as he moved in the spirit. He would preach and he would teach them and they would ask him questions and they would argue with him in a public display and he would come uh, and, 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 and teach every single point of that journey of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and he would point it to Jesus and they couldn't refute him. 
And not only could they not refute him, he would back up what he taught about Jesus with signs and wonders and miracles in his life. And I think that's such an encouragement to us is that we would be people who profess Jesus but are also quick to get out of the way and let Jesus do things for, for people. If we talk about Jesus, if we're gonna preach Jesus, if we're gonna display Jesus, let's also invite Jesus to meet people and let's not overthink it. Pray for people, ask them, what is something that's in your life that you need prayer for where Jesus could meet you and let them share that and pray with them and then get out of the way. Amen? Okay. I'm spitting, I've got a towel, I don't even know what's going on. So they bring, the, yeah, come on. So they bring Stephen, they can't, they can't, they can't defeat him. They don't know what to do. So they bring Stephen before the Sanhedrin, the same Sanhedrin they brought Jesus before. It's kind of the ruling um, people who make judgment over culture and religious laws of the day in, uh, in Judaism. And so they bring him before that, that council. And, uh, and he's being accused of teaching that the temple is obsolete and against Moses and all of these things, which he was kind of doing. He was doing that, but it's more he was just preaching Jesus. So they bring him before and they say, these are the accusations that are against you. Do you have anything to say for yourself? And he's like, oh. Oh, I'm so glad that you asked. And so chapter seven is this beautiful message that Stephen, and I believe it's the best message, the best gospel message. Um, one of the best gospel messages, one of the best messages uh, in the entire New Testament. And, and, and here's why. It's because if you're intrigued, if you're a part of Living Waters, you're intrigued by the way that we view Scripture, which is Scripture is God's covenant journey with mankind. It is the recorded journey, the covenant journey with mankind. If, if you see that and you read Scripture that way with us through that, through that lens, you're going to see as Stephen preaches this message in Acts 7 that he hits every single covenant along this journey of Jesus coming and bringing in the new covenant and making doing away with religion. And so that brings us to... To Acts 7, but at the end of Acts 7, he preaches to them so clearly and so profoundly that they again can't do anything, and so they get angry. And it says, when the members of the Sanhedrin, this is verse 54 of Acts 7, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, who we know as Paul. 59, while they were stoning him, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when they had said this, he fell asleep, which he didn't really fall asleep. It's, it's a euphemism. He, he died. Um, so so uh, he died. And um, so this is what I want us to look at. Really quickly as we overview this, and I know that I teach fast. You guys have told me for years that I teach fast. I haven't stopped now, so you're just going to have to deal with it. Or I haven't stopped yet. I'm not going to. Um, Stephen responded to the charges that were brought against him with an overview of hi the history of Israel and his attack upon the Jews and upon the Sanhedrin and the Jewish religious council, the leading council, was this, is that they were continuing the tradition of their forefathers and murdering the prophets, those who would come to tell you about God and call you back to God. You've killed them, and now you have killed the Messiah. And that was his accusation against them. So we did, as I mentioned, he hit on all these covenants, but his basic message is this. You were given the law, but you failed to follow it. And just like those before you, you killed the prophets and the Messiah. So he's reviewing the history of Israel and Luke, who's writing Acts, uh, makes sure to highlight this message so that Paul and the author of Hebrews can expound upon it later on as you read through the New Testament. 
So when he did this, this brought upon him the fury of the council. They were so angry that he claimed to see, and when he claimed to see Jesus, so they were angry at what he, what he said to them. But when he claimed to see Jesus standing, that was what threw them into an absolute rage. Why? Because this is what Jesus said in Mark 14. He was making a direct correlation with Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin and, and the priest Asked Jesus, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God, mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Coming on the clouds of heaven is referencing the judgment of Matthew 23 and Matthew 24 that Jesus prophesied. And so that apocalyptic language of coming on the clouds isn't like, oh, yay, glory. It is God saying, this is my judgment. I'm coming in judgment. So what Jesus is saying to them is that you will see me at the right hand of God, and you will see these things that I'm prophesying to you taking place. And so when Jesus said that, they said, haven't we heard enough? And they, and they tore their clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? They said, this is blasphemy. They condemned him as worthy of death. In verse 65, then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists and they said, prophesy who is hitting you. And the guards took him and beat him. And then they led him away to Pilate to ask for him to be crucified. It was when Jesus said, I'm the son of God and you will see me. You will see me at the right hand of the Father, and you will see me coming on the clouds that they said, enough, let's kill this guy. So Stephen also, note this. I'm just running through some notes from chapter 7 so you guys have some fun, fun background stuff. He met his end courageously and just like Jesus um, on the accusation of seeking to overthrow the temple and overthrow the temple worship system and the law. So his message, though, that ultimately got him killed was this, you killed Jesus. You killed Jesus. And so this is what threw them into a rage. Matthew 27, when Pilate saw, this is again going back to Jesus' trial, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but instead a riot was breaking out, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. You bear the responsibility. All the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So the, so the Sanhedrin, they were so sure that Jesus wasn't the Messiah that they were like, whatever, may his blood be on our heads. If he, we're not even worried about it. Our heads and that of our children. And when Pilate saw that response, heard that response, he said, fine, I'm washing my hands of this. You take Jesus, I'm releasing Barabbas. And then Jesus was then crucified. So Peter picked up that accusation. So they said, we will take responsibility for this death. Peter picked up that accusation in Acts chapter 2. Fellow Israelites, this is after the Spirit fell upon them. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. You saw it. This man was handed over. To you, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, or men without the law, which would have been the Romans who didn't have the law, or the Gentiles, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So this accusation against the Sanhedrin is, you killed Jesus. We take responsibility for his blood. And so they were like, fine, you killed him. And this is the message of the, new of the early church that they keep repeating. If you follow me to Acts chapter 5, the apostles were brought in, and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. And they said this. 
We gave you strict orders not to teach in Jesus' name. He said, yet you have what? You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. They were so sure that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. And then they thought, we'll kill him and that'll be the end of it. But they killed him and it wasn't the end of it. And then all of a sudden there's people popping up here that are following Jesus. And there's people popping up here that are following Jesus. And all around it's beginning to spread. And more and more fingers are, they feel like fingers are being pointed back to them of accusation. Going, whoa, whoa, we, we didn't do this. We got we to gotta put an end to this. And so they thought it would be a wise choice to bring Stephen in to question him and make a display of him. So when that happened, as you know, the story or in Acts 7, as you guys read Acts 7, you will see Stephen said the same thing. You are guilty of murdering the Messiah, of killing Jesus, just like your forefathers did to the prophets. And so another thing I want you to see out of Acts 7 real quick. Stephen's response as he was being stoned he prayed as Jesus had to forgive those who were stoning him, to forgive those who were persecuting him, that, that God would not hold it against them even as they hurled insults and then stones uh, uh, onto him and killed him. He forgave and he released them. And some of you might be asking, just of note, how is it that they were able to kill Stephen and not able to kill Jesus without a trial before the Romans? And I think it is simply this, the notoriety of Jesus. Put Jesus in a place where the, the Sanhedrin felt like it was important to appease the ruling class, the rules that the Romans had, that if they had gone against that and it would be seen as inciting a rebellion, if the people rebelled, then the Roman government would have seen them as starting a rebellion and they would have moved in and taken away their freedoms and, and it, all kinds of... Um, restrictions and, and, and maybe even occupation would have taken place and a lot of their ways of life could have been restricted because they were still under that rule. And as long as they weren't rebelling, the Romans left them alone to do what they were doing. And so they knew that Jesus had such a vast following that they couldn't get away with it. So they wanted to go through the proper channels. Whereas with Stephen, a lesser known, a lesser known man without the following that Jesus had and in response in their anger and their fury, they just lost it. And they didn't go through the proper channels and they killed him in the process of, of losing their minds in anger and in frustration. And so that was just a historical note that you might be wondering. So the reason that I saved Stephen for today is because I think there's a lot of things that we can learn from Stephen that we can apply to our lives. And I don't often teach this way, but I wanted to do it this morning where we just take some time to, to say, here is how we inductively study scripture. We get to the historical contextual reality of it. And we, and we pull out from that place. But sometimes it's important that we also, we're not just studying it, but we're pulling the, the principles out or the lessons that we can learn. So I want to offer to you some lessons from, this, from Stephen's life, as short as it was, was in this story. So here's the thing. Stephen faced the Sanhedrin and his accusers alone. Acts 6.15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, they looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And he was just standing there beholding God, but he was standing there by himself. And, and it, it, Jesus stood alone before the Sanhedrin, but, but there was this, this reality that there is, Jesus, are, or God, are you going to come and, and save me? And he stood before them and faced their judgment and their wrath alone. For Peter and John earlier in Acts, what happened? Gamaliel stood up and said, leave these men alone. If it's God, it'll, it'll, it'll be sustained. If it's not God, it'll go away. So when Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin, someone unexpected intervened for them. Or, or another time when they were thrown in prison, what happened? Someone intervened for them. They were going to be killed the next day. And, and an angel shows up and says, hey, you, we're setting you free. 
But for Stephen, there was no Gamaliel. For Stephen, there was no angel that showed up. This is the reality is that he stood alone and he faced the consequences of how Jesus had led him to live his life and what Jesus had led him to speak in, by the Spirit, what had led him to share to those people. We all love those stories of deliverance, but what happens when there isn't that last second save? And that's what Stephen, that's what Stephen walked out. And the lesson we can learn this is this. Listen, God doesn't always send an angel for you. He doesn't always send a Gamaliel to, to intervene, an unexpected, uh, so, uh, someone to step in unexpectedly, or that last minute intervention. It wasn't, Stephen didn't go into this because he thought, oh, God's going to deliver me. He went into this because he believed that Jesus was enough. And he just said, I will follow you. Wherever you lead me, I will go. And if you intervene, you intervene. If you don't intervene, you don't intervene. But I have to stay true to what the Spirit is leading me to say and to do. And so he stood alone. Well, how do we respond? When Jesus leads us into something and we go, God, there may be no returning from this, but I'm believing that you're going to deliver me in the 12th hour. But even if you don't, you're enough. You're enough. And that's the heart that Stephen carried. The second thing that we see in Stephen's life is this. Serving revealed his purpose. It didn't limit it. If you remember from Acts chapter 6, Stephen was one of the ones that they called to serve the early church. He's already a man of notoriety. He's always already known in the community. He's already performing signs and miracles and teaching with eloquence. Eloquence and with, I can't even, if you can't even say the word right. It's not the right word to say incorrectly. Um, so he could have easily just said, I, don't, I, I shouldn't be the one serving. Don't you know who I am? But instead, when they called and said, Stephen, would you step into the community and would you serve? Would you serve at the food bank? He was like, yes, I will. And he stepped in and he began to lead and organize and show people how to do that and model a servant heart that is so powerful. It wasn't that he, it's, this is beneath me. His humility was on display. If we are too good to serve, we can learn this from Stephen's life. Serving doesn't limit our assignment or the activation of our gifts. It grows and releases them. Serving didn't limit Stephen's assignment or the activation of his gift. It released him into more influence. If we're doing things in obscurity and we're willing to show up for people where nobody knows and nobody sees, then guess what? God can entrust us with authority. He can entrust us with a voice. He can entrust us with a platform. But if we're too good to serve people as Jesus asks us to serve them and show up for people in the ways that Jesus is asking us to show up for them, he's not gonna be able to entrust us with the passions and the gifts that are dormant or latent inside of us. And in activating them, when we can't serve in humility and he activates them and puts us in a place of no variety, those gifts and those opportunities are going to crush us because we don't have the humility to live in them and to steward them. But Stephen was like, here I am, God. I will serve. I will preach. I will do miracles. I will hand out bread because I'm doing this all for you. Wherever you send me, whatever you ask me to do, I will do it. So we learn from Stephen that Another thing we see in this story is when we move from our serving assignment to our influence assignment, there will be great pushback or persecution. So if you just stick with me for a second. A lot of people say there's no real persecution today. We're not being persecuted for our faith. We're not being persecuted for our faith. And while I understand that to some degree, the other thing I would say is if we only exist to like serve and take care of people's needs, 
but we never allow that to catalyze our life and put us into places of influence where we can then speak the truth as God is calling us to speak it and to reach to the people that God is calling us to reach to, we're never gonna, we may never experience the pushback that is in fact there within our day and within our culture and within our reality. I'll, I'll simplify it like this. If you have a group of friends and God says, I want you to love these group of friends and you go, I'm just gonna serve them. I'm gonna hang out with them. Uh, when they have needs, I'm gonna be like, hey, I'm praying for you and what can we do? And I just wanna spend time with you. Let's go get a coffee. Let's talk life. And you have this group of friends, but then eventually your serving of them and your loving them and caring for them leads you into a place of influence. And they begin to say, hey, what should I do about this? Or what do you think about this life thing that I'm doing or these choices that I'm making? And you can have this moment of choice where you can be like, uh-oh. But if you step into that place of influence, there's a good chance that your friends who you've loved and served are gonna be open to hearing the truth of Jesus and to hearing the things that you in, in the supernatural wisdom that God would be giving you to speak directly into something that's going on in their life. But you also might experience them saying, you know what, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. That's what I'm talking about. And so I can explain it with a group of friends, but I also would say that's the same within places of influence. It's the same within our culture. We can serve and serve and serve and serve, but God is calling us to go beyond serving. Let serving be a springboard to places of influence. When we go into those places of influence, we can expect that there may be pushback when we are walking and releasing the truth and the dynamic of Jesus around us, right? We have that relief center warehouse for months and months and months. We were in there every single day. And we were not in there just to serve people because almost every single day there would be moments when I would look over and Kim would have someone weeping and they're praying and she's telling them about Jesus and she's loving on them and that we're having, getting to have all these different contacts with people and speaking truth into their life and telling them about Jesus and the love of Jesus and why we exist as a group of people that would open their building to them. Yes, it was important that we served during the fires because we were here and we were located in a place where God said, here, this is the time. Use the space I've given you. But it wasn't just about serving. It was about being open and available to what God is calling into a place of influence. One of my friends, his name is Sam Flaherty. He's awesome. He is the pastor of a church in Coquille. He's a pastor of a small four-square church there. He's also the mayor of Coquille. I love that because he was a volunteer firefighter for years, and he was a pastor who was basically just a part-time guy because it's a small town with a small church. And he just loved that city, loved that city, loved that city, loved that city. Volunteer fire, they called him. He'd walk around town. They'd be like, fireman, fireman Sam. And then eventually that serving brought him to a place where he said, you know what, I want to step in and be mayor of this city. And they were like, yes, come and be mayor of this city. And so now he steps and stands in a place of radical influence in that city because he served but didn't limit himself only to serving. He said, God, what is it that you would use out of serving? What would you call us to? It's the same thing we've asked about the Relief Center. God, how are you calling us to influence this city? because of the places that you've given us a favor now within the city. Okay, so persecution. The other thing we learned from Stephen is this. Persecution revealed that his focus was on Jesus. So Jesus, or Stephen, as he's being persecuted, he's having these people try to kill him. He is saying, I see Jesus. I see Jesus. And so what I want to tell you is this. What can we learn? Do you see Jesus? Are we in a time where we are being pressured, where we are being pushed on, where we are being refined, where we are, are facing trials and struggles? Here is my, here's how I would implore you in that, is make sure that the more that comes against you, the more that you see and set your heart and your eyes on Jesus. Trials and persecution reveal, one, it reveals where our focus has been before the trials and persecution, because if people don't have their focus on Jesus, 
Jesus, they face trials or persecution or pushback or hard times, guess where their focus is going to be? On what is going wrong, on the trials, on the hard times, on all the things, and they're going to be so overwhelmed by it. But if you, but if you see someone who has set their heart on Jesus and they enter into struggle, you know what happens? They just keep their eyes on Jesus. It doesn't diminish the reality of the struggle. It doesn't diminish the reality of the pain. It doesn't diminish what they're walking through, but they see Jesus. But it is also, trials and persecution are also an invitation. It's clarifying. It is a moment in time for us as a church, as a person, as a family, as a marriage, to say this season is very hard. Good. What should we do in response to that? Well, let's number one. Let's make sure that we have our eyes and our lives focused on Jesus so that no matter what comes against us, that instead of looking at what's attacking us, we're always looking at Jesus and saying, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And if that is our perspective, do you know what happens to the things that are coming against you in this realm when you can see Jesus so clearly standing over your life? Come on, that changes every single thing and the way that you respond to it, right? Okay, hold on just a minute. Man. Yeah, no, I don't want misters. Those things are gross. Who knows what that water carries around? I am, a, I am my personal mister, and I am fine. But if I'm going to carry a towel and fill this thing with sweat, I'm going to expect a lot more response out of you people. Seriously. My towel, oh, I won't say it. Oh, man, I almost just got myself in a ton of trouble. Okay, so, so here's the thing I want to say. Get your eyes on Jesus in your places of pain and struggle. Get your eyes on Jesus today. It's not too late. Get your eyes on Jesus. Do not waste the pain. Do not waste the persecution. Do not waste the refinement. Don't waste it by putting your eyes on what hurts. Don't putting your eyes on what's coming against you. Putting your eyes on what's wrong. Put your eyes on what's right. The righteousness of Jesus. Put your eyes on it. Today is the call, a fresh call to say, yes, this is a hard season, but let it lift your eyes to Jesus. Like Stephen, I see Jesus. I see Jesus. So forgiveness was his response. Here we go. Another thing we see in Stephen's life. Forgiveness was his response even while they were stoning him. John 13 says, you will be known by your love. Matthew 5, Jesus tells us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Listen, do you think this is how culture is experiencing the church in America today? Come on. We have to love our enemies better, our enemies. If we love our enemies, we have no enemies. We love them with the love of the Father. Now, I know, I know, that's just silly talk, right? I get it, there's enemies, I'm sorry. But we have a chance in how we respond to people and how we respond to culture. When's the last time that you truly forgave someone who crossed you, who viewed the world differently than you, who attacked you, who gossiped about you, or went against you while it was taking place? You want a medal? Oh, six months later, I finally worked through it all. I forgave them. Well, good job. <laughs> that means you were not living and carrying forgiveness. That means you had something on the shelf that you had to figure out how to get and apply into your life so that you could apply it to others. Jesus doesn't want us to carry things or put things on the shelf. He wants us to carry him, his person in us, so that we can release forgiveness while it is taking place. Some of the, you guys got that though. You got that. You got that. Okay. 
Okay, and, 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 and just for the record, you don't, I've said this before, but you don't get credit for being persecuted for being a jerk. If, if you're going to be a jerk and people are like, you're a jerk, you don't get to be like, oh, they're persecuting me for Jesus because I love Jesus. No, it's because you're being a jerk. Does that make sense? Stop being a jerk. So when I, <laughs> let me give you a 30-second example of this. 30-second example. I played basketball. I was not as good as I should have been. I also was a very small human being. I was frail. I was like a bird. I, like, well, I was like an ostrich out there. And, 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 and I thought I was awesome. I was. I mean, I watched all of Michael Jordan's videos. So, of course, how could I not be good? I just basically just, it embedded into me. I would play basketball. And because I weighed 72 pounds at six foot four, I would, dri- I would drive to the hoop and someone would not even, not even like bump into me. They would just stand there. And I would go like, boom. And I would go, foul, foul. Listen, they didn't listen, listen to me. I think the heat is causing my tongue to swell. They didn't foul me. I was too frail. I was too skinny. I spent too much time. My coaches would tell me, Ryan, you're spending too much time shooting and dribbling. You need to get in the weight room. And I'm like, whatever. I just want to shoot. Shut up, Jarek. Um, And so I was constantly like, I'm getting fouled out there, coach. He's like, no, you're not. You're not strong enough to do this game. And this is the thing. This is what the church looks like a lot of times is that we get bumped by culture and we go, foul, foul. Someone's hitting me. And guess what? It's not that culture is fouling us. It's that we're too anemic to stand in our position in Christ and let things bounce off of us. Why do we have to react to everything? Why do we get nudged and throw ourselves out of bounds and chuck the ball and slide across the floor going, foul? Why? We are the victors. We have the strength. We have our position in Christ. He is our foundation that we stand on. He is the unshakable rock. We are standing on him in strength, and we can hold our position as we should without being thrown off. Okay, does that make sense? You don't give me Okay. Our lesson from this, forgiveness was his response even while they were stoning him. Our lesson in this, are we ready to change our world? Then we must walk in this type of radical love and release grace and release forgiveness to people and to culture around us instead of withholding it until they act the way that we want them to act. You withholding grace and forgiveness to a culture that doesn't know Jesus is not changing them. It is confirming to them that we have judgment in our hearts toward them. But what changes people? Mercy and love and grace and forgiveness. We do not change behaviors in people by withholding. We change it by giving what Jesus has given to us to call us to give it away as freely as I have given it to you. Stop withholding grace and forgiveness and mercy from culture around you because they're not acting the way that you want them to act. They don't know Jesus And hopefully, they would get to know Jesus through us if we could stand closer enough to their life, which goes back to the point of serving and serving and serving and serving to show love to people. I'm going backwards. Let's just reverse this message. We're never going to get through it. 
Even in tragedy, this is the last thing from Stephen's life. Even in tragedy, God is up to something. His plans cannot be defeated. So Stephen was this rising star in the church. He had a gift for understanding Judaism, Old Covenant law, biblical history. He was a a Hellenistic Jew. He'd been raised in Roman culture and language. He was uniquely positioned to carry the gospel out of Jerusalem, throughout the province of Rome, and he was demonstrating Jesus powerfully, presenting the good news clearly. I told you last week there's a good chance that he was arguing with Paul and defeating Paul in arguments. If not Paul, then definitely Gamaliel. Why? Who was Gamaliel? He was the one that stood up for for, uh, Peter and John, right? Do you know who else he was? Paul's teacher. Paul's mentor. And so this is the man who would stand in the Sanhedrin and would bring these accusations, make these arguments. And so Stephen would stand up to everyone, even Paul's teacher, and defeat them in explaining Jesus as the Messiah. How powerful is this man? How uniquely positioned is this man? His position in the church, his position in culture, he was set up to lead the church. As we watch this handoff take place from Peter's life into uh, eventually to Paul, there was this person who it was handed to, and his name was Stephen. But Stephen's life was cut short. Unfortunately short. And we, the early church could have looked at that and said, Stephen was the one who was going to carry us. Stephen was the one who had authority. He was bringing all of us together, the fragmented parts of our church, bringing them together. He was operating in authority. And now he's dead. And I love this picture. It's the one who stood there and held the, held the cloaks of those who killed Stephen ended up being the one that was marked to take his place. So Saul becomes Paul, and Paul, listening to Stephen, teach and argue and teach and argue and teach and argue as he's learning and learning and learning and learning. And then this message that Luke highlights that, uh, that Stephen spoke, Paul took all of this in. And God didn't waste any word from Stephen's mouth, anything from Stephen's life, and Paul received it all. And he received it, and he carried it, and at the right time, the Spirit interrupted Paul's life changed his life and sent him to seek the revelation of the Spirit to be able to understand what were these things that Stephen was saying? What were these things that we were arguing and always talking about in our schools and in those, those open courts of debate? What was it that they were saying? I believe that one of the things that Stephen's life shows us is that there's never a dead end that God does not have a plan for. And so even if today you're at a dead end, I want to speak this reality over you. Stephen had something to carry and that was something powerful that would have changed the church and affected it. But God wasn't done when Stephen was finished. Unfortunately, he had another plan. And God met the church at that dead end. And I want to speak this over your life. That you might feel like you're at a dead end today. My, my heart to you with everything that I am is call out to Jesus in that place. Call out to Jesus. He does his best work at dead ends. He does his best work when we have gone through and said, I've made every effort. I've done everything I can think of, everything that I should do. I've done it. But it has, these best laid plans have fallen apart. They have fallen to pieces. And I believe that God wants to pick up the pieces of your life at a dead end. And he wants to create something powerful and beautiful that resembles and reflects the power of the gospel, the power of Jesus in your life. And so take one of these with you today. I know that teaching like this, you're only going to retain one, you know, like 10%. So that's why I teach so much in one setting, because if 10% of that is quite a bit. We're going to go get our, we're going to go, we're going to go get our kids and love on our Kingdom Kids team. If you have uh, offering that you want to give on Sunday morning to support us, there's a black box in the back. Um, can you guys stand with me? I want to speak these over you so that you can take one of these home with you. You're not to hold on to all of these. Don't try to hold on to all of these. Take one of these. 
When God doesn't send an angel or a Gamaliel or an intervention, Jesus is still enough. Serving doesn't limit your assignment or the activation of your gifts. It grows and releases them. The Spirit will lead you from serving into places of influence. Are you ready? Invite trials and persecution to narrow your focus on Jesus. Let trials and persecutions be answered by this in your life. I finally see Jesus like I've never seen him before. We must carry radical love that releases grace and forgiveness to this world. And God does his best work at dead ends. Stephen was removed from the story, but God was not done. And Paul stepped in. Amen? Amen. Awesome. Thank you, guys. We love you. Have an amazing Sunday. Give somebody a distant high five or a whatever, eye contact. We love each other. We are praying for you this week, always. from here but sometimes i wonder i might have met the love of my life